right, good evening, and welcome to our momversation. It's Thursday night, and we're excited because it's almost the end of the week. I'm sure some of you all are enjoying fall break, and then many of you all are anticipating next week's fall break. So wherever you've landed, have a great time with your kids, make the best of it, find you some time to get some rest. But tonight we are excited because we have Ms. Larissa Gregory and she's going to talk to us about the educational system and culturally relevant pedagogy. Okay, that's a mouthful. Can't tell you any more than what those words are, but that is why you are here tonight to learn more. And I think as we are trying to navigate uh, this land of double pandemics, this is an important conversation, right? We have been laser focused on our educational system here uh, in Memphis and Shelby County. And you can imagine every other mom is in the same place around the world. But we wanna also make sure we're being intentional that we are advocating not only for ourselves as parents, but for our children to make sure their learning is culturally relevant. And so that as they grow, as we create another generation, they're much more intentional with their actions. So I will turn it over to our co-host, Erica Madlock-Conley, and she will tell you a little bit more about our guests. Thank you, Lori, and thank you, Larissa, for joining us tonight. So um, Larissa and I met, our boys are in school together, um, and so we've had an opportunity to, you know, meet and work together as parents, and um, at our school recently kicked off um, the conversations around DNI and what that looks like in the classroom. And so I heard Larissa speak about, you know, culturally relevant pedagogy and why it's important, um, not only for, you know, black students, but really for all students and, and really the perspectives that we can bring as parents, but then also educators and what we need to do to really make it, you know, forward thinking and preparing our children for the world, no matter what their kind of school environment is. So I know for those of you that are watching, you may have children who are in diverse schools. You may have children that are not in diverse schools. And so I think looking at that holistically and how that will prepare our children for the future. Um, so Larissa has a wealth of information, uh, a wonderful background to speak to us, not only as a mother of three, but as someone who is an educator and a consultant and I'm sure that, you know, we'll, we'll have some, some good nuggets to take with us tonight. So as usual, if you have any questions, definitely leave those. Lori and I have plenty of questions, and I'm going to toss it over to Larissa, and she can define this big word for us, culturally relevant pedagogy, and what that actually <laughs> looks like day to day. Thank you, Erica, and thank you, Lori. I'm really excited to be here um, you know, culturally relevant pedagogy, it is. It's a very big word, and it's one that I think hasn't come around to the forefront um, and has been more of a buzzword for a while. When we hear buzzwords recently, we hear restorative practices, we hear social emotional health, we hear self-compassion and self-care, and we also hear culturally relevant pedagogy, and people are like, what is that and how do I do it? And it's really about um, centering everything that you do about the student or about your child and centering everything to where it's focused and it's relevant for the child's learning. So whether you're the parent, whether you're the educator, where you're, whether you're a community advocate, it's centering your focus on the student, on the individual child and their needs. That's what culturally relevant pedagogy is. 
And I've seen that play out over the last like seven to 10 years that I've been in education. I have a mix of cognitive behavior therapy and being a school leader. And it's been this like beautiful bridge of bringing two different worlds together. And this work was originated by Gloria Landing Billings, excuse me, and she said that culturally relevant pedagogy is this. It's a pedagogy that empowers students intellectually, socially, emotionally, and politically. When we think of like culture, we often just think of race. And yes, race is a part of that, but it's the whole child. It's developing um, a perspective or a lens on race that's intellectual, developing a lens on race that is socially informed so that we can send students, so that we can send kids out into the world that are informed with their decision and why they feel that way and what they plan to do about it. Um, it's being informed emotionally and politically as well. And so when we're talking about culturally relevant pedagogy, it's really an education or an upbringing or an intentional time that we're spending with kids that really recognizes and celebrates the individual identities of all of our kids. All three of my boys are completely different, right? I have my oldest son, um, he's nine and a half going on 10. He is our by the book, the rule follower, the one that needs to know what's coming, what's past and what's in between. Um, then we have our middle son who is seven. And as long as he knows that we're like going a general direction, he's good. Um, he's the life of the party. He loves to push boundaries. He loves to take risks. And then we have our youngest son and we're still learning more about him, but he has special needs. And so he comes with unique challenges. And so we we've learned their identities and we are learning their identities. And it's the same way with culturally relevant pedagogy. Once you learn their identity, you learn what to do for them. You learn how to communicate with them. You learn how to nurture their brilliance. You learn how to um, expose and elevate their infinite potential that they may have that they might not know is there yet. And so culturally relevant pedagogy, although it sounds like a really big term, it's centering on your kids. It's centering for what's best for them and it's teaching them how to make informed decisions for themselves in those different categories, intellectually, socially, emotionally, and politically. Um, so I'll open up with that and would yeah. love to just enter into some dialogue. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and one thing um, I think that has really been, I think, a gift through this pandemic, you know, and slowing everything down and being at home with our children 24 7. <laughs> um, is 24 7. Yes, it's even a different <laughs> insight into, you know, who they are, what makes them tick. And particularly when you're transitioning from them being, you know, in your eyes, these small kids into, you know, both of our boys are in fourth grade, oldest boys are in fourth grade, and really seeing them mature into like these preteens and everything that comes along with that. Um, and so I think that's really been a gift, but it's also been an opportunity from, I think, a cultural standpoint to really share more about who we are and kind of, you know, our belief system and how we approach all these different things that are happening in the world, um, how we handle like a pandemic, how we <laughs> handle, you know, civil unrest. So they, my kids have actually seen us, you know, in our frustration moments, watching the news and taking all of that in and how we process it. So what do you think parents should do now? I mean, I know things are opening up a little bit more, 
but really using this time really to, like you said, be able to address and learn more and approach the whole child. Yeah. One of the first things is just choosing to learn and choosing to listen instead of telling, like ask, what do you think? What do you feel that's going on? What do you need right now? You know, those open-ended questions where we can just listen to what's going on in the small brains or the big brains that are developing of our children. Um, I think we would be shocked and surprised all of the thoughts that they're having that are relatively similar to the ones that we're having, that they're scared, that they're frustrated, that they're overwhelmed, that they too are enjoying the extra time that they're getting with us just as much as we're enjoying it with them, or that they too are annoyed by the extra time that they're having to spend with us and we too are annoyed at times. So like just entering into these conversations um, that are real and that we're willing to position ourselves as listeners so that we can learn more about who they are. And I agree with you, Eric, I think it's one of the gifts, if you will, of this time for some of us is that we're able to spend that extra time that in other seasons or circumstances we wouldn't have. And so what are we choosing to do with that? And the days absolutely get long. Um, they are absolutely hard. This is unparalleled and unprecedented times in all the ways. We're in multiple pandemics, and so there's nothing light about it. But I do think there's an opportunity here for us to be very intentional with the decisions that we're making with and for our children. You know, how we're processing this, how we're modeling, how we're processing everything is going to be the mirror of what they think is right, fair, good, and just to process this as well. So if we are um, using a line from conscious parenting, like if we're modeling that we're frustrated and we're like working through that frustration, then that tells our kids, hey, when I disagree with something or when something isn't going well, it's okay for me to be frustrated and find out where I land in this. Um, so taking time to learn about our children in a more intentional way around these topics that maybe have been a little bit taboo before, but like they're open before us all, um, interviewing our kids, uh, sharing with them really an unbiased and raw truth about what's going on in the world and not trying to sugarcoat it. Like we want to keep it age appropriate, absolutely. Um, but we want to share with them that there's police brutality and violence. It's very real that's going on in our nation. There is a digital divide to where not all kids are able to access learning right now with virtual learning and in-person learning and hybrid learning. What do you think about that? What would you do? What would be your solution? You know, helping their brains like wrap around and process too um, would be, a, you know, a great, a great thing to do. Giving them some relevant and real problems that our world is facing right now or that we are facing as adults. One of the conversations I was having with my boys because it's really confusing to them that I'm in front of my computer so much. And there was this moment where they thought that like I was ignoring them because I was in front of my computer and mommy used to go to work. And when I came home, computer closed and they didn't have to see it. And so I had to say, you know, mommy is in front of her computer because I have to work this way because of COVID-19 and just really map it out. And by having that conversation, they were able to tell me that they were upset with me for a while because they thought that, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so just being open to like integrate these relevant and real world experiences through conversation and not trying to keep it all together, 
um, but inviting them in into that space where it's age appropriate, right? The conversation I would have with my seven-year-old would look different than my nine-year-old. And there's still some students that I stay in contact with from when I was a school leader. So like a 21-year-old, I'm going to have a different conversation with him um, than I would with my younger boys. So um, just these these new these new topics that don't have to be something that we whisper about, um, but it can be something that we live out loud with our kids so that when they do get older, as they do grow, they question things. They wonder, they're curious, they ask the right questions, they dig deep for themselves, and they begin to seek out where the culturally relevant pedagogy is around them. And if it's not there, then they know how to go about meeting that need for themselves. And that's ultimately what we want, is for them to be curious and to meet that need for themselves. Absolutely. So Larissa, we talk a lot about, especially recently, the village that, Yeah. I think this double pandemic has just brought us all together in ways we were just talking about before we went live that just for yeah. us to continue to move forward, it takes more than just the parents, right? We now see our parents and aunts, uncles, and now we're more supportive and more engaged, I think, with teachers. How do we, as parents, I think, and I think our students, right, our kids, how do we make sure um, we're supporting teachers to exercise is culturally relevant teaching or instruction in the classroom. Uh, I was on a parent call before you answer. I was on a parent call and I remember there was some conversation about just the level of comfort for teachers to do that. Um, mm -hmm. But just tell me your thoughts about that. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things that have been unspoken for years in our education system. And there's a lot of things that have gone untouched because they didn't seem like places where we could speak up for our kids. And because we are in this like transparent and vulnerable space right now and nothing feels like it's off, um, we can speak into those spaces, A, assuming the best mm -hmm. and not assuming that someone is wanting to do harm to our child would be the first thing that I would say. Yeah. Um, because I think that our best for all of us looks extremely different right now, especially than it did pre-double pandemic. Yeah. And yeah. so assuming the best that you don't really know what's going on with the other person, you don't know their lived experience, you don't know their culture, you don't know their implicit bias, you don't know, and it could keep going on and on again. So with teachers, assuming the best would be my first thing. Second thing as a parent is be curious. Um, not to be accusatory first, but be curious and ask questions and invite the teacher to also ask you questions. And if you're seeking to press in in such a way that you're wanting to advocate, going with potential solutions and being very task oriented and where you're wanting to provide solutions, and not just dropping solutions there, but being active about the solutions. So for example, if you um, have a student, let's say you have um, a black son, I have a black son. Um, so let's say that he goes to a predominantly um, white school. I would be curious as to whether they had black texts or other texts with students of color um, in their reading, right? And so if I was curious about that, 
I would first go to his teacher assuming that she has no ill intent of withholding uh, texts that have students or children or families of color in them. Um, I would also go to her being curious about what is in her library, in her classroom. And then if I learned that it didn't reflect what I felt was right, fair, and just for my son to be exposed to, I would suggest some texts. Um, I'm really encouraged by the text that you do have in your library. I wonder what it would look like to also add these one or two texts in your library because I really feel like my son would be able to experience a mirror and seeing himself in that story. And I also think it would be great for his friends to see um, someone else in the story that doesn't look like them. Because culturally relevant pedagogy, it's not just relevant for kids of color. Um, or for families of color. It's good, right, fair, and just for everybody. Living an integrated lifestyle exposes us to different cultures and different ways about things and different identities and lived experiences. And it gives us this avenue to celebrate things that are different than ourselves and to be curious about things that are different than ourselves versus being punitive or to break down what we're not familiar with. Um, so I hope that kind of paints a picture of what it would look like to go to a teacher and to support a teacher in that way. No, that was perfect. Sorry. I had to oh, you're good. the background in my house. <laughs> yeah, I really, um, I love that you <clears throat> gave us a lot of practical tips on how to have those conversations, because I think particularly speaking from the perspective of, you know, people of color, folks, you know, being in an underserved community, oftentimes we are silenced, right? And we don't really know how to advocate in different spaces. And so I think that what you just gave is like those different tips. I mean, we know that we've had conversations around health care, health disparities with Black women, just from folks not listening, you know, to us, not thinking right. that we know what's best for us and for, you know, our bodies. And that can also translate over into education a lot of times, right? And so I think really thinking of ways that we can come together, you know, mobilize, have those conversations, um, and, you know, hopefully make things better, you know, for children as well. And so I know, Larissa, you also have a consulting firm. And so you have a lot of these conversations. So can you just share with us a little bit of what that, what those conversations look like or who's calling you and saying, hey, come help. And I'm sure everybody's calling right now saying, come help, come help me now. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I wish it didn't take everything that has transpired over the last six to seven months for there to be a need for the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or for there to be a need for social, emotional learning and health. Um, I work part-time for the Memphis Teacher Residency as the department chair for social-emotional learning, work super closely um, with coaches and with residents and with graduates and alumni of that program to help equip them with social-emotional learning best practices for their classroom, not just for the students, but also for us as adults. We have to be whole beings coming in front of small children or coming in front of developing children so that they can develop um, in the right ways so that they can develop in the most healthy ways. And then the other part of my time, I did, I started a consulting firm, it's LG Ed Consulting, um, and I primarily focus on social emotional learning and health, both for adults and for kids and restorative practices. 
the beautiful part about social emotional health and learning and restorative practices is it has this great intersectionality, if you will, with diversity, equity, and inclusion. To include somebody means to take into consideration the wholeness of the person. And so when we're considering the wholeness of the person, their emotional health falls into that as well. So right now I find myself working part-time with the Memphis Teacher Residency, and then the other part of my time working with schools um, locally, working with districts locally as well, and then some nonprofits around professional development, um, building skills so that people that are in front of kids can have the skills for themselves and they can authentically give them away. Part of culturally relevant pedagogy, restorative practices, social emotional learning is not just to read from a textbook and then go tell the kid something, but it's to genuinely and authentically interact with something so that you can give away a lived experience to a child as they develop. So I really enjoy spending my time both with the Memphis Teacher Residency and through building and cultivating LG Ed and Consulting. Um, been a consultant, kind of in the background for about three years, but officially on paper, I've been a small business for right at a year. Um, and it's been a joy to both serve at the Memphis Teacher Residency and to run a small consulting firm. As you continue to flourish in this amazing consultancy firm, I think in a time of need, do you think that educational systems, large educational systems, will systematize this restorative practices, culturally relevant pedagogy or teaching or learning um, into their system? I know there's been lots of conversations this year with parents but interested to know if how school systems really make that transfer and those baby steps to make it something they do beyond 2020. I think that's a great question, Lori. And if we look at how and why the educational system was built, yeah. it wasn't built to accommodate culturally relevant pedagogy. <laughs> that's where we have to start. Right. Yes. And yeah. so it's not a system that we're seeking to tweak. It's not a system that we're seeking to like make suggestions. Schools and districts will make movement when they're willing to reevaluate and delete and add and rebuild. Okay. That's where we are. <laughs> um, our school system was not built to be informed for people of color. And so we are now in a position to where you either want to be a part of breaking um, systemic oppression and cycles that have hindered people of color from flourishing, yeah. or you don't. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of get in where you fit in. And I feel like um, from the work that I'm seeing and the work that's happening, people's ears and hearts, I think the heart is also important here, are open to places where we as a whole have been blinded and haven't really been putting a name to things. We haven't been putting a name to privilege. We haven't been putting a name to white supremacy. We haven't been putting a name to racial equity. We haven't been putting a name to all of these different things, assimilation, white dominant culture, all of these different things that have built our education system. And in order for there to be change, it has to be systemic change. Systemic change will be long lasting change and systemic change doesn't come through hiring a consultant um, that can help, but it comes from internal thoughts 
of changing how you were built as an organization, what practices, routines, and systems that have come about inside of your organization, and are you willing to challenge tradition for the sake of providing access, for the sake of providing inclusion, equitable learning, um, and for the sake of like doing something that's uncomfortable. Culturally relevant pedagogy is uncomfortable for some, and it's inconvenient for most, but it's absolutely necessary. So Larissa, how do you navigate through those conversations? Because the words that you just used, I mean, you know, Lori and I, we're nodding, we're like, yes. I mean, you know, these have now become a part of our almost daily lexicon. We're talking about what systemic racism looks like, uh, white sure. supremacy, how they're showing up. But for a lot of people, those words are very triggering or it completely shuts down the conversation. And I can appreciate like your tone and your delivery because it, it does kind of push you at ease. But how how do you navigate those conversations, particularly realizing that probably six months ago, some people had never even really heard these phrases or if they heard it, they attached it to something very negative. Um, and we even see that these phrases are now even being politicized <laughs> um, in a way of not to use them because of the feelings that they evoke in others. So how do we navigate those conversations really using those words that are really the only words we can use to get across what is actually happening? Mm -hmm. We have to normalize language, in my opinion. And that's from if you're talking to your two-year-old or if you're talking to a 92-year-old. Um, you're going to approach the conversation differently because of their lived experiences, but shared vocabulary gives this this space to where we can unite. Not that we will always agree when we unite, but it gives us a place to start. And so sharing vocabulary is one of the very first places when it comes to like the conversation of race or culturally relevant pedagogy that is always a go to. It's, the same with social emotional health and learning. I always start with the brain and the science behind the brain and why we feel a certain way. And when we can share vocabulary, when we can normalize vocabulary, even if we don't agree with it, we can know where the person's compass is taking them. Um, so if I'm using white privilege in an accusatory or in an attacking way, that's not gonna be beneficial for the sake of growth, learning and understanding. But if I'm defining the term and giving concrete examples, whether from history or culturally relevant recent things that have happened, that gives us the space to kind of walk in together, if you will, even if we don't agree. Conflict is one of those things that is going to come up, whether it's silence or whether it's, it's verbal, whether it's body language or whether it's actual, actual pushback. Conflict can actually be the very thing that like moves the needle forward. Sometimes you have to put it out there and walk away from it and let it just kind of sit for a moment and then go back to it. This work that we are doing collectively, the same way that we are collectively going through trauma um, with both of these pandemics, we are also collectively having to relearn or learn new terms, new ideas, and come to new truths. If we would be honest, we all hold implicit bias, right? We all have things that we're drawn to that we're not drawn to, so on and so forth. But it's hard to look those things in, in the face. It's hard to, to name those things about ourselves, our weaknesses, if you will. Um, and so when somebody's doing that, sometimes you have to walk away from that. I was in a conversation not too long ago, 
and someone said in the conversation, it's always necessary. I'm paraphrasing what she said, but she said it's always necessary um, to rebuke somebody when they're wrong is what she was saying. And so there's going to be times that like wrong is wrong and I need you to know that you were wrong. Um, but I'm also going to tell you why I feel that you were wrong. But before you even do that, you want to open up the space, whether it's a child, whether it's a colleague, whether um, it's a friend, and ask them, like, what happened from your perspective? Like, if there's some type of visceral response to vocabulary, what just happened? Did I miss something? Um, and just listening to that and then entering the conversation. It's going to be uncomfortable. We can expect for it to be uncomfortable, but if we have shared vocabulary in that discomfort, it does help to move the needle forward. Yeah, and I and I definitely feel like, you know, and grace is a huge part of it as well, because I know that yeah. sometimes, particularly, you know, as mama bears, if something happens to our children in particular in a situation, it's, it's hard to go to that assumed, you know, positive intent or go to the positive side of it. And so I think on the yeah. flip side, we're dealing with, you know, individuals who may be part of majority culture and we may react in a certain way. I think that it's also helpful for them to realize that that is a lot of times coming from a place of trauma. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, just like some things in language may trigger their emotions and reactions. There's a lot of things that may trigger our emotions and reactions. So what may come across as an overreaction to something, particularly in a school space and with teachers and all of that, is really mm -hmm. just kind of that protective tendency um, that pops up. And, and we feel that we need to protect our children, particularly in a time like what we're dealing with. Absolutely. And that that feeling, it's there for a reason. Um, that defensiveness, that's part of our guard. Um, it's part of our neurological response to stress. It's part of our protective nature, especially um, as women that have given birth to our children. It's a part of who we are. They're an extension of us. And so when we see that something could be potentially harmful to them, we want to step to that. We want to know why. Um, and I think that that's, that's a beautiful part of um, being a mother. That's also a beautiful part of being an advocate. Even if being a mother is not your role, having something that you're passionate about that you want to step to when you see that it's a threat towards um, a group of people that you have care and concern over, you can do something with that. You can use your voice to that. Um, and I think culturally relevant pedagogy calls us to a place to where we're focused on children. Like we're focusing on raising and developing whole children intellectually, socially, emotionally, and politically. Um, and so to rise up is right. It's just about, to your point, Erica, how we do that. Um, I think giving each other grace and space, especially in this time of a double pandemic, is absolutely necessary. So Larissa, tell us, since you are leading this consultancy, talk to us about, you know, how you would help support um, educators, you know, a school system, because I think when we look who tunes in and who's watching, they can be from teachers to family members, but also leaders of school systems. So give us a snippet. Don't give us a lot now. We need people to call you and pay for your services. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> So walk us through, you know, a client experience um, to get them from point A to point B, what that journey looks yeah. like. Yeah. 
I love to be a listener and a learner. The very first thing, um, I don't want to bring solutions into an organization at all without being a part of the organization first. Yeah. And so getting to know the leaders, um, speaking with them beforehand, you know, prior to the pandemic, being in the building, being in a staff meeting, what that looks like now is just having conversations before even getting to their staff or before getting to potential solutions. Um, so really listening and learning. What do they see the needs as being and why? What's the evidence of it? What are you hopeful for? Uh, what do you think is going really well? You know, so just going through all these, these different questions and primarily for me that's centered around social emotional health and learning and restorative practices. And because of the intersectionality with diversity, equity, inclusion, that comes up, but that's not my entry point. Um, my entry point is social, emotional health and learning and inclusion and equity are a part of that conversation. Um, so starting there by listening and learning um, and then really goes one of two ways, professional development. And so providing expertise, providing conversation, facilitating conversation, norming on that shared vocabulary, just really walking the staff, walking the org, whether it's a district, whether it's a school or whether it's a nonprofit, building that base of language is really, really important. And so doing that through professional development or doing that by mentoring and coaching. So not every single time am I in front of an entire staff. Sometimes I'm just working with that leader. Sometimes it's just that principal or just that nonprofit manager to where we're like combing through the how, what, and why over and over and over again and providing and sharing in some shared language, resources, so on and so forth. I'm going to listen to you, Lori, and not give too much away. Um, but doing that uh, with the organization or with the leader and then coming up with the scope and sequence of what it looks like. And that can take from a month. Um, it could be a year. Um, I like to do things in chunks because, as we can see, like the tide can turn at any point in time. And we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves in planning. We want to make sure that we're flexible and that we're customizing to the needs. And so um, I really lean into customizing services for schools and for districts and for nonprofits. That's good. Yeah. Stop before you're ahead now. <laughs> yeah, I'm done. <laughs> Just made a note of all you said. And at the end, it says, and once you get to that point, call Larissa Gregory for more. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I know. Well, to that point, are you still accepting, you know, new clients at this time? Because I know that that's also a lot of the you know boutique firms are at capacity just because of the need so are you still taking on new clients to offer your consulting i am taking professional development clients right now okay. um from now through the end of this calendar year um and okay. then at the beginning of the year so 2021 um, I'll open it back up for mentoring and coaching opportunities, but right now I'm booked at capacity for mentoring and coaching. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation right now about what's to come or what you'd like yeah. to plan for. But as far as executing it, um, I've had to learn my boundaries too. And I think that we all are figuring out like what this new normal is and will be. Um, and that comes with capacity. And so yeah. right now my capacity is full to mentor and coach. Um, but I can provide professional development. So if you're looking for professional development around social, emotional health and learning, restorative practices or inclusion and equity, LG Ed Consulting, check me out. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Larissa, for joining us. I mean, you gave us a lot of information and you broke it down. Like, I'm going to be repeating stuff that you said. I'm going to sound like I really know. (laughs) So so thank you for taking it from here, breaking it down for us, um, and also giving us some really good actions and next steps that we can take as parents and even in our relationship with educators and even with other parents. So I appreciate you joining us for the conversation. Do you have any closing remarks that you want to say before we kick it over to Lori? I know she has an announcement and she's going to close us out. Yeah, I just want to say be encouraged. We are in such a hard time right now. And the worst thing we could do for ourselves is to be harder on ourselves than we actually should be. And so find what I like to call golden nuggets. Find a golden nugget from this conversation or from something else that you're learning and growing in. Take that golden nugget and do that one thing really, really well. Picking up extra things right now is not what any of us need to be doing as far as like trying something new that feels uncomfortable and outside of who we are. Find a golden nugget and do your golden nugget really well and know that your best is absolutely enough. So thank you all for having me. You're getting all the shout outs. I just want to make sure you can see these. Becky Irvin shared that, you know, educator at the highest. And then Kelsey Walkley said, uh, thank you, Larissa. So great job. We had to make sure you saw those before you left us. Thank um, you. <laughs> thank you for joining us. Really, we learned a lot. I was taking notes. I want you to know I wasn't ignoring you. I was taking notes. I <laughs> It will sound just as intelligent as you did when you delivered it. Um, but no, we appreciate you for joining us at Momversations this evening. Uh, I am sure people learned a lot about conscious parenting and how we can not only advocate for ourselves as parents, um, advocate for our children, but also advocate with our educators um, in this journey as we close out 2020 and look ahead to whatever 2020 look, 2021 looks like. Please join us, not next Thursday, but the Thursday after. We will have our next uh, conversation with Ms. Tasha Downey on respectability politics. How has respectability politics uh, furthered us or gotten in the way? So be sure to tune in for that on October 22nd, 6 o'clock p.m. And just for you all, I decided to change t-shirts um, and put on yet another t-shirt that says women vote early. Uh, When Erica and I started these conversations or really this effort in June, you know, we wanted to make sure we were focused on activation, education, and legislation. And if you didn't know, this is a very, very critical election year. And so we've joined forces with a swath of other women and women's groups to make sure we are getting not only women, but everyone out to the polls to vote early Early voting is October 14th through the 29th. So we will have a press conference and rally this Saturday, 10, 10 at 10. So October 10th at 10 o'clock AM, Mississippi Boulevard. We've been told that a storm is coming through. So if so, we will not be outside. We will be in the gym at the church. So join us for more information. You can always RSVP with Erica at Erica, E-R-I-K-A, at wonder, W-U-N-D-H-E-R.com. I'm Lori Spicer-Robertson, co-host Erica Matlock-Conley, and we were happy to share all the learning with Larissa Gregory.
Have a wonderful evening. Go make some dinner. If you are like me, go do DoorDash or Uber Eats. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Bye, y'all.